catch the ball. You gotta catch that. Um, I, I know it's the playoffs, but can I talk to you for a moment? Sure. Yeah. Um, I feel like the amount of time that you have spent watching football has been detrimental to the amount of quality interaction time that we have with our children. Um, okay. It's just, it makes the kids and I feel kind of, um... Unwanted. Yes, exactly. I had no idea that my actions were causing you to feel this way. Thank you for bringing this to my attention. I sincerely apologize for my selfishness and I humbly ask for your forgiveness. I forgive you. Well, grab the kids. Let's do some arts and crafts. Catch the ball! Stick it! Talking about marriage today, I want you to go to two scriptures, Genesis chapter 2 and Ephesians chapter 5, and these two scriptures will come together in just a few moments. And we're going to talk at this, during this series about marriage at some point. Today is that day we're talking about marriage. Uh, next week about parenting, and we want you to be at both because we know how difficult family life can be. When it comes to marriage, let's be honest, let's be clear, marriage is hard. Marriage is difficult. Marriage will kill you. Um, and some of you have the impression that a Christian marriage is a perfect marriage, or that if you are a Christian and you marry a Christian, then you should expect a very Christian happy home with Christian kids, Christian dogs, Christian cats. <laughs> Everything's going to be fine. God will be with you. God will bless you, and, and there's going to be no problems. But the problem is that you didn't marry a perfect person. You married a Christian, and a Christian has a fundamental understanding that they are not perfect, and they need a lot of help. And so what you really married was somebody who needed a lot of help. That's what makes marriage so difficult. And sometimes we are guilty of doing this as Christians. Sometimes we're doing, guilty of doing this in the church. Maybe you grew up in a church where the pastor seemed to have the perfect life with the perfect wife, the perfect kids, because they really loved God. And, and you had this impression that that's the epitome of serving God to have this perfect home. And let me be clear to you that wherever you got that picture, I guarantee you, you did not get that picture from this book. Because this book is brutally honest about the difficulties associated with marriage. Brutally. Okay, I said this a couple weeks ago. It was perfect for two chapters. And then for the rest of the Bible, it's, it's bad, it's hard, it's difficult, it's challenging. And then you get to the New Testament and a guy named Paul who spread the message of Jesus all over the known world of his time, was a single man, and he said to the Corinthians, this is a verse from the Bible, just to show you how honest the Bible is about marriage. He said this to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 28, reading from the Bible now, those who marry in this life will have many troubles. And I want you... And <laughs> Is that a married man who said that? That's not good. Okay. And he said, and I want to spare you of that. And he even says, it's better not to marry. 
And this is the, the truth. This is how the, the Bible presents marriage because we are sinful creatures who are inevitably or, or um, constantly looking out for our own good and our own happiness and our own likes. And if you get in the way of that, then there's going to be trouble. There's going to be conflict. There's going to be problems. And that's the reality. That's what marriage is like. I found this story. I found it funny. I want to share it with you. It's about an old couple down in, in Alabama in the deep south named Stumpy and Martha. And Stumpy and Martha went to the State Fair of Alabama every single year as a married couple. And on the first year they went, they saw this airplane booth ride. And the airplane booth ride took them up over the state fair and landed them down safely. But they wanted to go. Stumpy wanted to go. Martha didn't want to go. And Stumpy said, Martha, I'd like to go up on that there airplane ride. <laughs> and the airplane ride was $10. And she said, Stumpy, that there airplane ride is $10. And $10 is $10. And this went on, the same conversation, for 30 years. At the state fair, every year, Stumpy would say, Martha, I want to go up on that there airplane ride. And every year, Martha would say, Stumpy, that there airplane ride is $10. And $10 is $10. They were in their 70s at one point, going to the same state fair. And in the 70s, Stumpy finally had had it with Martha's ways. He said, Martha, I'm 74 years old. I may never get another chance to go up on that there airplane ride. I want to go on up on that there airplane ride. And she said, Stumpy, that there airplane ride is $10. And $10 is $10. Now, for 30 years, the airplane ride conductor or airplane ride pilot had been hearing this same conversation from this couple every year. And he was fed up. So he said, I'll make a deal with you. I will take you up for free on one condition. That neither of you say one word for the entire flight. Stumpy said, looked at Martha, and Martha couldn't answer, uh, uh, argue with that, so they got on that there airplane ride. And they went up, and the pilot decided to trick them, and he was going to get that $10 out of them. So he took off straight up into the heavens and then straight down as fast as he could and then barrel rolled over the fields and took them all around with hard banks and deep turns and cuts and up and down and, and really tried to rock their world. And the whole time, they're completely silent. He lands the plane and he turns around to Stumpy. He says, Stumpy, I can't believe that that whole plane ride, you guys didn't say one word. I guess you can't give me the $10. And Stumpy said, well... I was going to say something when Martha fell out. <laughs> but as she always said, $10 is $10. <laughs> Hopefully that's not your marriage. <laughs> but it might be close. Marriage is difficult. Marriage is hard. And today we're going to look at, as much as we can, a, I mean, you could do a whole series on marriage, but we're going to take a bird's eye look at how the Bible addresses this sacred and awesome and powerful relationship. So let's look at Genesis chapter 2, and then we will read straight into Genesis, uh, Ephesus, uh, Ephesians, Ephesians 5. So Genesis 2, Ephesians 5, let's look at the 15th verse of Genesis 2. Again, this is the creation account. This is, everything is perfect. Everything is order. And here's how God wants it set up. And here's what it says. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Somebody say, work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. 
But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat it, for in the day that you eat it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now, out of the ground, the Lord had caused, the Lord had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and the birds of the heavens and the beasts of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused the man to to fall into a deep sleep. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up the place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. This is the last verse of Genesis chapter 2. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Verse 25, this is actually the last verse. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So God brings them together. They're naked, they're not ashamed. That's the end of Genesis chapter two. Just remember that. Ephesians chapter five now. Turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter five, verse 18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for everything, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her by washing her with the water of the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle, or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother. Does this sound familiar? Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become. One flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as he loves himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Let's pray. Father, we approach your word with humility today, and we ask that you will speak to us. We don't take these words lightly. We want to take them soberly. We want to take them introspectively. And we ask that as we hear what you say about this marriage relationship that you created, we will remember that the only way to do it is the way that you presented it in Scripture. And I pray that every marriage in this house, wherever it is, will heed 
the word of God, will believe for the best, and will ultimately, through their marriage, reflect the glory of God, reflect your glory, Father. May we learn to walk as Jesus walked and love as Jesus loved. For it is in his name we pray, amen. If you're taking notes, I want you to fill in the blanks. And if you're not taking notes, I want you to fill in the blanks. I got four things to say about your marriage. Number one, from the, from the record of scripture, there is no doubt that you need to understand something fundamental about your marriage. Point number one, if you're taking notes, my marriage is worth it. My marriage is worth the work. My marriage is worth the fighting. My marriage is worth the problems. My marriage is worth seeing it through the difficulties. My marriage, and if you're not married, my future marriage, is worth it. It is valuable. It is honorable. It is beautiful in the eyes of your father. And any other idea concerning marriage outside of that has to be categorically rejected by people who love Jesus. We are called into this relationship by Almighty God. He wants this to happen. He created it, and he has great plans for your marriage. Now, I don't care what happened that made you get married. And I don't, I don't care what the circumstances were of your younger years that caused you and her to come together in this marriage relationship. And I don't even care if one of you is saved and one of you is not saved. I am not here to talk about the conditions on the past, but I am here to talk about how you can affect your present and your future. Because we have two choices with marriage. We can obsess about regrets from the past or we can do something about right now and make sure that our future is blessed. Your marriage is worth it. And I wanna talk to you about your marriage being worth it from three perspectives. From three perspectives of three different beings. Number one, God's perspective. Number one thing about God with your marriage, I want you to write this down on the back of your notes because it's not there to fill in. God loves your marriage. God loves your marriage. He is pro you staying together. Uh, I want to apologize for something I said last week. Sometimes I speak off cuff, and I, and I want to apologize. When I present things in the, in the scriptures, and sometimes to kind of give you an illustration, I tend to get a little sarcastic. The more you get to hear me, the more you know that my, my humor bone uh, rings with sarcasm. Okay, so I last week was talking about how many of you think I'll get married and then I'll be happy and then I, I kind of overdid it with how miserable you might be after getting married. And I want to apologize for that. <laughs> and the reason why I want to apologize for, for it is because on Monday when I came into the office and I started to pray about this, mar- this, this message, it was as if God spoke to me clearly and said, Tim, you need to stop doing that. This is a beautiful relationship that I have created. And we need to understand this. We need to understand that God created marriage and everything that God creates is good. Remember in the creation account that he creates the land, the sea, the stars, the heavens, and everything. And every time he creates something, he names it, and then he says, it is good. But when he creates woman for the man and brings them together, he looks at them two together and he says, not it is good. He says, it is very good. Marriage is the pinnacle of God's creative order. And he loves your marriage. 
even if one of you is not saved and one of you is, listen, he doesn't say in his word, get divorced. He says, you stick it out because the unsaved partner can be sanctified by the one who is saved. And there is a potential for people who have that mixed you know, faith marriage for there to be a redemptive purpose of God in your marriage. He loves your marriage. And you need to hear it. I think that the church should be a place where we honor marriage as Hebrews chapter 13 tells us to honor marriage and keep the marriage bed pure because God loves it. In Malachi chapter two, we talked about Malachi chapter three last week concerning tithing and money, but Malachi chapter two talks about marriage and staying together and here's what it says. Didn't the Lord make you one with your wife? Didn't the Lord do this? In body and spirit, you are, and what's the next word? You are what? You're his. Your marriage belongs not to you. Your marriage belongs to God. And then he says, what does he want? He wants godly children from your union. Notice that he doesn't say, and he wants you to be happy all the time. Because happiness is going to come and happiness is going to go. And there will be times in your marriage where you are exceedingly happy, and there will be times in your marriage when you are exceedingly unhappy. But happiness is a terrible barometer on which to make a decision as to whether you should get married or stay married or get divorced. Stick it out because God is looking for a godly generation from your union. And here's what it says. Guard your heart. Remain, what's the next word? Remain loyal to the wife of your youth, for I hate Divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. Let's stop there for a moment. Touchy scripture. Notice that God does not say, I hate divorced people. He, hate, he doesn't hate divorced people. He hates divorce. It's like God saying, I hate car wrecks. Why? Because car wrecks hurt people. He doesn't hate people who have been in car wrecks. He just says, I know the damage that this does to people. I know what this does to societies. And I know most of all what this does to kids. And this is bad. So I hate divorce. To divorce your wife is to overwhelm her with cruelty, says the Lord of heaven's army. So guard your heart and do not be unfaithful to your wife. I want you to know beyond the shadow of a doubt through the record of scripture that God Almighty loves your marriage. And he wants you to honor it. Number two, the second perspective I want you to have on your marriage is this. The devil hates your marriage. From the beginning, the devil has been destroying marriages. From the beginning. I never saw this before this week, and then I realized something. Do you, do you see that in the creation account, Genesis 1, Genesis 2, that God creates everything, creates man, tells man to name all the animals? How many know that would take a long time? Right? He names everything. Giraffe, elephant, aardvark, whatever. That's a long time that the man is alone in the garden. And then he puts him to sleep, takes a rib, creates a woman, gives her to the man. That's the end of Genesis chapter 2. And Genesis chapter 3 opens up with, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the other animals. And the devil comes. The devil never attacked humanity until man and wife were married. He never attacked Adam while he was running around naked in the, in the garden by himself. Because Adam was alone was not a threat to the devil. But the moment that he got married, the devil came. 
This is why it's so difficult. The moment that you get married, how many know some of you are newlyweds? Don't answer. But some of you are not newlyweds, and you remember your first year was hell. Or your first five years were hell. Or your first ten years were hell. It was difficult. It was hard. Why? Because Satan wants to come and trip you up as soon as you get into that relationship. He wants to tear it apart as quickly as it came together. Because the devil knows just as well as God knows how much damage divorce can do. God loves your marriage. The devil hates your marriage. I was reading online this week about a man named Carl Zimmerman. In 1947, Carl Zimmerman was a, uh, was a doctorate, doctor of sociology at Harvard University in 1947. And he wrote a book. And you can get the book on Amazon. He wrote a book on all the rise and falls of every world empire in the history of humanity. He studied all the drastic falls of humanity's empires. And he looked up the one common factor of every empire that ever uh, was destroyed or, or fell on the earth. He lists 10 factors, but number one was this. In every failing society, marriage loses its role. Marriage loses its sacredness. And alternative forms of marriage are advocated. People lose sight of mutual respect and support, which is in healthy marriage. In other words, it becomes all about me, no longer about us. And then notice, this is why you will never hear about him on any news network. Alternate forms of marriage are introduced to the empire. Now, I don't know where you're from, and I don't know what your persuasion is, and I, don't, I, don't, I respect everybody's ideas, but listen to me. In God's perspective, it is only man and woman forever. Every other form of marriage is not God's. The state can call it what it is, but in the eyes of God, marriage is one man, one woman for life. And this is how an empire stays together. This is how a society stays together. And the devil hates marriage, and he knows that if he wants to take down the United States of America, he will destroy the institution of sacred and holy marriage because it was God's best invention in the creation account. The devil hates your marriage. Number three, not only does God love your marriage and the devil hates your marriage, but I want you to have a greater perspective on your marriage. Are you ready? Number three, you should appreciate your marriage. You should appreciate your marriage because study after study after study comes out to prove just how beneficial marriage is to people who stay married. Physically, Marriage is better for you. Physically, marriage is better for you. They did studies about this. Married couples experience better health. Married couples experience better health than single people. They experience lower levels of heart disease, lower levels of cancer, lower levels of the flu, lower levels of Alzheimer's, lower levels of depression, and lower levels of stress. Believe it or not. <laughs> marriage is good for you. Some of you think, oh, I could do better without them. You gotta stop thinking like that. You gotta back up the train mentally here and remember what you were like before you got married. Because you were not all that. In fact, I'm actually surprised you managed to get married. Somebody had pity on you and you should be ever thankful. Right? I mean, seriously, some of you guys, you're hesitating to marry the girl that you're dating because this is what you think. Oh, what if I find somebody more attractive in five years? What if I find somebody more attractive in 10 years? Hey, buddy, look in the mirror. 
you ugly Of course you're going and by the way of course you're going to find somebody better looking but you don't base a marriage on how they look you base a marriage on the character and their and their heart and their attitude and how what kind of a person are they and most importantly as a christian on the fact that they love jesus you got to appreciate it it's good for you the rate of mortality among married men is 80% lower than single men. That means that if you're married men, you have a greater chance of reaching 85. A far greater chance, almost double the chance of reaching 85. And maybe you know somebody, I know somebody, I was related to somebody who got married in his 40s. He's dead now. He lived 13 years after he got married. He was my brother-in-law, left two kids behind. Marriage is healthier for you. Uh, they found out that marriage is healthier for women, that, that women have a 60% chance, a 60% greater chance of reaching the age of 85 because they're married. Do you know why, do you know why it's better uh, health, uh, uh, physically? Because you both curve each other's bad habits. Now, it sounds bad because we, we know that a lot of conflict in, in marriage comes from, well, she doesn't want me to smoke anymore, or she doesn't want me to drink too much anymore, or he doesn't want me to, to eat too much, or whatever. And so and that is actually, as much as that might create conflict and might create problems, it's actually good for you. Now, this is, I can testify to this because I have a family, not my immediate family, but my extended family had a huge problem with obesity. Huge problem. And, and it was difficult for us because we grew up eating lots and lots of pasta, lots and lots of sauces, and we love to eat, 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 eat. And I married uh, Cheryl, and she doesn't like to eat, 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 eat. Uh, my family uh, lives to eat, and her family eats to live. She, her family does it the right way. And she and I have gone to blows about eating, but it has been good for me. That's how I've stayed so physically fit. <laughs> She's good for me in that respect. And then some of you have huge fights about the bad habits. Listen, stop fighting about the bad habits. That person's trying to keep you around. Some of you are like, I want to go. I'm done. I'm sick of this. I don't know. No, it's good for you. Financially, it's good for you. Uh, married men. Married men make 10 to 40% more money in this country than single men. 10 to 40% more. Uh, they say it like this, that heavy, trucks carrying a heavy load tend to drive straighter. This is why it's very good for men to get married and have lots of babies. You need that load up on that truck because you will drive straighter and you will think about more than yourself. And because you are thinking about more than yourself, you are, th you are living the way God wants you to live and you will live further and farther and longer. It's good for you. Uh, they did another study that uh, married people save 93% more money than single people. 93% more money. Again, you curve each other's expenditures. You fight about what you're spending money on, right? Some of you hate those fights. Guess what? The, I think they're good for you. They're good for you. Because some of your spending is outrageous, and you need to listen to the person who doesn't want you to spend. And that's just the reality. Uh, emotionally, marriage is better for you. Tim Keller, a pastor in New York, says... He wrote a book called The Meaning of Marriage, and he says in the book, marriage is a tremendous shock absorber to life's unexpected problems, and that's absolutely true. When somebody dies, when the economy tanks, when the housing goes under, whatever it is, marriage provides that shock absorber to that unexpected moment. Keeps you healthier emotionally. They did a study on 100 married couples that were very unhappy. 100 married couples on the edge of divorce. And they decided to do this five-year study 
and they surveyed the couples five years later, and they found out who divorced and who stayed together. And out of the couples that stayed together, despite being extremely unhappy five years earlier, that if they stayed together 80% of the time, 80% of the time, five years later, the couples responded by saying they were not just happy, they were extremely happy. Here's the deal about your problems in marriage. Your problems will either outlive your marriage or your marriage will outlive your problems. It's your choice. Stay together, God loves your marriage. Generationally, you're better off. Children who grow up in a married home do two to three times better than children who do not. And some of you are living with somebody, you're not married to them, you're creating babies. I'm telling you something, you are being absolutely selfish. Selfish. Grow up and get married. If you enjoy making babies that much, get married and stick it out for the sake of those kids. It's not about you anymore. It's not about you. I mean, seriously. Thank you. <laughs> my marriage is worth it. Number two point on the, on the other side now. My marriage needs God's help. Now, marriage is difficult. Marriage is hard. But listen, God never intended for you to do this on your own power. He never intended it that way. Um, let's back up in Ephesians chapter 5. We read Ephesians chapter 5. Did you notice that when I read Ephesians chapter 5, I did not start with wives submit to your husbands. I went all the way back to Ephesians 5.18. And the reason why is because in the Greek text, not in the English text, in the original Greek text, the section on family and parenting starts not with wives submit to your husbands. It starts with Ephesians 5.18, which says this. And do not be drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be what? Be filled with the what? Spirit. God wants you to be filled with his spirit for your marriage. And you need the Holy Spirit to make your marriage work. You can't possibly, wives, you can't possibly submit, truly, without the Holy Spirit's help. And husbands, you can't possibly love her as Christ loved the church, sacrificially, unless you have the Holy Spirit in you. This is why God sent the Holy Spirit in the first place. Remember that Jesus said in John chapter 14 that it's actually good that I go away. Because if I go away, the helper, the comfort of the Holy Spirit will come. But if I don't go, he won't come. In other words, it's better for the Holy Spirit to be in you than for Jesus Christ to be walking next to you. That's how important the Holy Spirit is. That's how important it is to your marriage. You, you've got to realize that, that this, this situation that we, we are in right now, uh, coming to church and listening to me speak on the word of God, I, I'm not here telling you how to improve your life. That's not the point of my messages. Mainly the point of my message is to tell you that you can't improve your life. That's the fundamental message of the gospel. The, me the fundamental message of the gospel is that you are broken. You are hopeless. You are depraved. You are evil. God bless you. <laughs> and that apart, apart from the sacrificial blood death of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit in you, you have no chance at making it work. You need the Holy Spirit. Some of you have this wrong impression about church, that church is for good people who sit there and be good people, listening to another good person telling them how to be better people. 
That's not church. Church is supposed to tell you just how hopeless we are. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. For why? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The people who know they need God get everything that he has to offer them. You need the Holy Spirit. I want to show you from Genesis chapter 2 how what Ephesians 5 says is the exact same thing. This idea that Paul gets in Ephesians 5 comes from Genesis chapter 2. Backing way up now in the original creation account. Verse 7 of Genesis 2. Let's look at the order. Let's look at the order of how God brings these two, Adam and Eve, together. Verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground. So he forms man. And then he breathes into man the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Now, the word breath there in the Hebrew is ruach. Ruach. It is the word for the Holy Spirit in the entire scriptures. It's, here's what God is doing. He forms the man. He breathes into the man his Holy Spirit. Then man comes alive. Now notice the order goes on. Verse 8, and then the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. In verse 18, so he puts him in the garden, and in verse 18, then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. This is all very intentional on God's part. In the scriptures, he's trying to show you this is how the order should go. First, let God form you. Second, let God fill you with the Holy Spirit. Third, let God give you responsibilities and a job. And fourth, finally, let God give you a mate. That is the order God wants out of your life. What we are living in is a generation that has idealized love and affection. You listen to the pop songs, listen to the culture songs, listen to how this world talks about it. Look at how Hollywood jumps in and out of marriages. Look at how every romantic comedy ends with them living happily ever after. It's all about love, 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 and you got to find that person who's going to make you feel so special and so wonderful, and that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches let God fill you first, and then go find that, sp- that spouse. And by the way, let God bring them to you. Don't go chasing after them. Amen. We live in a generation that chases after the love, chases after the love. I need somebody to love me. I need somebody to make me feel good about myself. And God says, no, no, no. Let my Holy Spirit come into you. Let my Holy Spirit fill you. And then live from the power of that relationship. And God will give you the right spouse at the right time and bless your life. You say, well, how do I get the Holy Spirit? You get the Holy Spirit by asking God. In Luke chapter 11, in Luke chapter 11, Jesus says, if you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give what? Say it with me. Give the Holy Spirit to those who what? Ask him. Have you ever asked the Holy Spirit to fill you so that you can love your spouse? Like, like if you came from my background, Pentecostal background, you asked for the Holy Spirit so that you could maybe speak in tongues or feel the heebie-jeebies in the Holy Spirit, right? And, and feel that moment of glory in the worship experience. Oh, that's the Holy Spirit. Okay, maybe that is the Holy Spirit. Maybe it was just you felt the song at the right time. Because sometimes I get that song when I, when I hear Don't Stop Believing" by Journey, okay? I mean, that's just the reality. But, but here's what the Bible says 
<laughs> Here's what the Bible says about the Holy Spirit. God gives you the Holy Spirit so that you can know how to submit to one another. The Holy Spirit is a submissive spirit. It is not a, my way or the highway spirit. It's not. That's the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm not hearing many amens, but I'll just continue. If you can't say amen, just say ouch. That's even good. All right, point number three, my marriage needs God's direction. My marriage needs God's help. My marriage needs God's direction. Now, God has a plan for your marriage. And we read it, and I want to unpack it a little bit. You got to do it God's way. And, and when I share these scriptures, when I share these scriptures, listen to me, young ladies, listen to me, men, and, and, and young men. You can look at these scriptures, and you can disdain them, and you can hate them, and you can listen to what the world says about how marriage should go. Or you can go with what God says. And this entire country is a case study on both options. So you can get mad, or you can receive it happily and say, I'm going to do it God's way. Someone's going to be right and somebody's going to be wrong. I'm going with God. It's up to you. Here's what it says. Number one, wives respect submissively. There has to be a submissive spirit in the wife toward her husband. There has to be a respectful spirit toward her husband in the Lord. It says, wives submit even as the head of, uh, to, the, to your husband as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. Now, now, now we miss the impact. We miss the impact because we are living in 21st century America. We miss the impact of the fact that, that the first person in the family that Paul addresses in Ephesians 5 is women. In the ancient world, you never addressed women in letters. You never did. Even right here, Paul is breaking a cultural mindset. Women were considered property. They were considered chattel. They were never addressed by anybody. Letters were addressed to men because predominantly men were the only ones who could read. And they were told, man, just control your women. That was it. We have letters from, from other people, other historians, other writers who wrote in this time. And Paul breaks all those cultural trends. And he doesn't just address women, but out of all the family members, he starts with women. Because he's saying, this is how it works in the kingdom of God. Women, we're not saying to men, dominate you and control you. We're saying, you in yourself, choose yourself to respect and submit to your husband. This is an amazing moment in the scriptures, and we fail to see it because we're so baptized in the Christian context. Women, it starts with you. And the number one need of every husband, the number one need, they've, they've done study after study about this, is respect. Wives, I, wanna, I want you to hear me. Your husband needs respect. He even needs respect more than he needs sex, as, as much as the culture doesn't want us to know that. Husbands will rise to the level of your respect. And listen, he won't go above it. If you want a more honorable husband, then you respect him as a more honorable husband. It starts with you. If you want your husband to be a man of God, then you treat him like he's a man of God. And you don't treat him like he's a man of God by nagging him and getting on him about all the things that he does wrong. You gotta learn how to praise him. You do. You have to 
Honor him with your words. There, there is one thing that a man wants more than anything. Nothing is more attractive to a man than a woman who is willing to say to him, you are the man. Nothing. You ever, you ever realize how there are no male cheerleaders at women's sporting events? Right? Men need the women to cheer them on. Women can just get the job done. That's the truth. But men need that. We feed off of that. Here's what happens in the corporate world. A man starts his business or starts in business with nothing but a wife. He's broke. He's penniless. He, nobody knows him. Nobody likes him. He has to earn his stripes. He, uh, you know, fulfills his dues and works himself up to the top of that company or to a nice, great place in that company. And people at the job love him and honor him and respect him. But the wife has stopped honoring him, loving him, and respecting him. And then he finds another woman in the company who will love him, honor him, and respect him for the man that he is there. And this is how affairs begin. Because he's getting it at work, but he's not getting it at home. Wives, your husband will live up to the respect level that you have for them. The, Pro, uh, the book of Proverbs has this final chapter in the book of Proverbs, chapter 31, and it's about an, a woman of noble character. And here's what it says, wives, listen. In the wife of a noble character, her husband is known at the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. Now, the gates of the land in the ancient world were the places where the government centers were held. What is this saying? It's saying that a woman of noble character has such respect for her husband that he elevates in society to a place of status and notoriety and power because of her. If you demean him, if you beat him down, if you nag him, you will get nothing but more conflict and trouble in your marriage. You say, well, how do we resolve our disputes? I got problems with him. Of course you do. You got to sit down. And you got to say it gently and normally. I feel like this. And try it that way. Instead of going after him and going after him and going after him, respect him. And he'll love you for it. I'm telling you. Um, Ephesians chapter 5, 22 says, Wives, submit to your husbands. But listen, right before that, it says, Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is a mutual submission, the Bible teaches. Husbands, listen. Mutual submission. I don't just dominate my wife and say, Okay, Cheryl, we're going to do this and that and the other thing. No way. I can't do that. That's not what the Bible tells me to do. There are times when I say, What do you want me to do? There are times when I want something and she wants something, and I say, no, we're going to go with what you want. And this is mutual submission. This is how it should work in the kingdom of God. Because if you are filled with the Holy Spirit, you are filled with the Holy Spirit to be able to live submissively with other people. Number two, uh, the husband's responsibilities. Here's the husband's respons responsibilities in, the, in a marriage. Love sacrificially. Husbands, love your wives. And the next few words are very important. Say them with me. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's how you love your wives. There is no more attractive man to a woman than a man who is willing to lay down what he wants to help her do what she has to do. They, they, they did a study about um, uh, the attractiveness of husbands in a marriage. And the wives said, overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly, the question was this. When is your husband most attractive to you? And overwhelmingly, the response was, when he does housework. 
And, 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 and then they did a study in the University of Pennsylvania. Now, this is going to freak some of you out. It's kind of gross, but just bear with me. They did a study of, of uh, 100 women, and they, they took male sweat, and they put the male sweat on the upper lips of the women. Now, they didn't tell the women that it was male sweat because they wanted to stay alive. And so they put the male sweat on the upper lips of the women, and then they tested the women with several questions afterwards, and they asked them how they felt. And every woman, almost every single woman, said the same three things. Number one, they said that they felt more relaxed, they got happy, and they felt romantic. Backing up, gentlemen. <laughs> Pay attention. More relaxed, happier, more romantic. Husbands, the lesson is this. You are just one clean house away from the night of your life. <laughs> good stuff right here. Good stuff. As, as Christ loved the church. Okay. How did Christ love the church? What did he do? He came into our world and he helped us. That's really what he did. He died for us. He died for us. He died to atone us for our sins. Absolutely, yes. But before he did that, he came into our world and he helped us. Husbands, you need to learn the art of entering into her world and helping her out. I work hard. Um, the big joke about pastors, we only work one day a week. It's not true. It's a lot of work. And it's very stressful. But I'm telling you right now, my wife works me under the table. She is a hard worker. And I would never want to switch places. She is a hard worker. And every wife in the house knows it's hard work to keep that kitchen in order, keep, that ki keep the kids in order, get them dressed, get them ready for school. I mean, kids are a pain in the neck. Right? And they're doing the lion's share of the job. Husbands, you need to put the remote down. You need to put the video controller down. And you need to get into her world and help her out. And you go into the kitchen when you hear the dishes clanking. That should be, by the way, a Pavlov dog response, okay? If you hear, if you hear the kitchen clanking, that's a sign. And usually, uh, wives will clank them a little extra hard, right? You'll clank them just a little extra hard because you're trying to send the message. Okay, guys, learn how to hear dishes clanking and say, I need to get up from the couch, go into the kitchen, and say these words, all right? I'm going to teach you what to say. How can I help? Every man in the house, say after me. Ready? How can I help? All right. Now, ladies, ladies, listen. When your husband says, how can I help? He actually wants a straight answer. Okay. Talk slowly and clearly and tell him where you want certain things. Because a man will walk into a kitchen and the and the milk will be in the sink, and the cat will be playing in the cabinet, and the baby will be sticking his hand in the dishwasher and say, looks pretty good to me. <laughs> that looks pretty clean. I don't know. What do you need me to do? I don't know. He needs direction. We are not natural, and we cannot read your minds. So tell us. That's the only way it's going to work. And enter into a world and love her and help her. Now, point four is the final point, and this whole mess, you miss the message if you don't get this point, all right? 
My marriage needs me to make the first move. And some of you are sitting here saying, well, I'll respect him as soon as he becomes respectable. No. No. That's waiting for him. You start. Me first. Me first. (laughs) That should be our attitude. And and husbands, some of you are like, well, I'll, I'll love her as soon as she shows me some more respect. Okay. I can only guarantee one thing from that response. Only one thing is guaranteed. Nothing will change. If that's your response when you walk out of this building, nothing will change. But if you want to change your world, you got to do what Christ did. Christ did not wait for you to get your act together to die for your sins. He died when you were still a sinner. And he didn't wait for you. And if we're going to be more like Jesus, then that's what we've got to do. Make the first move. Why? Because God loves your marriage. And your marriage is worth it. And if you're going to live like Christ, the Holy Spirit has come to give you a submissive spirit.